Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of Raptor Rambles with me Jimmy Hill from Raptor Aid. Hope you're all well and you're staying safe. This episode we have got a real gem of a guest. Her name's Katie Harrington and Katie is a research associate with Hawk Mountain. Now Katie has been involved in monitoring a rather unusual and quirky bird of prey known as the striated caracara. Now, those of you that don't know what a striated caracara is, you're about to find out a whole lot of fantastic information and research that Katie's carrying out on these birds. But they they essentially nest and live on some very remote islands. So the Falkland Isles uh, is primarily where they are found. And Incredibly, as as Katie will tell us, there's very, very little that's been understood about these birds. And they're really, really interesting because they're essentially, they look like a terrestrial or a ground-dwelling hawk. They're closely related, though, to falcons rather than hawks. They are a bird of prey, but they're incredibly intelligent as well. So we tend to think of intelligence with birds, with parrots and corvids, but striated caracaras and caracaras in general, I believe, really, really put that to the test when it comes to birds of prey and their intelligence. And, and Katie will cover all that in her podcast interview now so hope you all enjoy it and episode three will be up in another three weeks uh, and we've got jose tavares from the vulture conservation foundation the director and i look forward to sharing lots of interesting things about the world of birds of prey with you right i always say good afternoon or good morning but it doesn't matter because because it yeah i don't know when people are listening to this so uh anyway welcome everyone to episode <laughs> two of podcast raptor rambles by raptor aid uh, anyone tuning into this for the first time thank you for joining us uh, my name is jimmy of raptor aid and i'm really pleased today to be joined by katie harrington who is a research associate uh with hawk mountain and she's carrying out some fantastic or has been carrying out for a number of years some fantastic work on a really really interesting species and i was just talking off air before we started recording about yeah how I came across Katie uh, on Instagram and I'm sure we'll get onto your your sort of social media feeds uh, apologies if the wi-fi uh, or, or if this goes a bit funny I think the wi-fi might drop out a little bit my end so welcome Katie thank you for taking time to chat to us thanks for having me I always start the same way, and I, I have ver- versed you a little bit. With everyone that I talk to, I always ask them the same question. So where did it all start for you? Yeah, sure. So, wow. My family had a property in Canada uh, on a lake growing up. Uh, it was purchased in response to a tiny, tiny newspaper ad in Cincinnati, Ohio, that said, buy lakefront property for like a dollar an acre. And so my family uh, got involved with that. And it ended up being this wonderful place where I went every summer and did these really extensive canoe trips in just the backcountry of Ontario. And so I've always had this really deep passion for wildlife, but I actually didn't get involved in biology until, gosh, my early 20s. Uh, And that's because where I grew up, 
and the classes that I took in high school, I thought biology was all about like lab coats and dissections and formaldehyde. And I was like, I don't think so. Like, this is not what I want to be involved with. And I, I just had no concept through my academic upbringing that wildlife biology and fieldwork being a field researcher was, was an option. And so I had veered away from that as an academic course, and I only returned to it when a friend of mine realized I was upset with my desk job and said, well, why don't you quit? And I said, huh, okay. <laughs> so uh, he taught me to sail in the San Francisco Bay, and we started sailing on research vessels and got involved with a white shark tagging project in the Farallon Islands off of California. And one of the shark biologists was uh, also a bird biologist. And so I got involved in this project from the crew support side, and it was day in and out, sunrise to well past sunset, and just like really beautiful, extreme wildlife field work. And I was thinking, you know, supporting this is great, but I actually have a lot of questions myself. And I, I kind of want to be the one asking the questions about these animals and their habitat and their lives and what they need to thrive and survive. And so in talking with this shark biologist who doubled as a bird biologist, I actually got more involved with, um, I got more interested in birds. And so I was like, all right, how can I pursue this field? And I went to the University of Washington as a marine field station where I could take a semester of marine biology and merge it with a semester of creative writing. And so I did this like beautifully blended coursework and met a young woman there, which I should, I should back up by the humanities undergraduate degree. And so I needed to get some work coursework for uh, pursuing a, a, a scientific field. And so I met a young woman there who was doing biomechanical work with mussels in uh, the San Juan Island area. And she was looking at thread strength and how ocean acidification affects thread strength. And I was helping her with some of her research. And she said, so you're interested in birds, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, have you ever heard of Hawk Mountain? And I was like, Hawk Mountain? No, no, I haven't. What's that? And she said that she had done an incredible internship, a summer of field work right after high school. And she got involved with hands-on research with Kestrels. She was involved with the publication, some analysis of the data. It was a fully... Uh, supported experience where you live on site in a scientific residence, you get a stipend, you, get, you take coursework, you do the field work, you meet with biologists, it just seemed like a great opportunity. And so I contacted the director and I said, how do I do this? It turned out that the program was totally booked for another year and a half. And I was like, oh, well, there goes that opportunity, right? And uh, a year and a half passes. And meanwhile, I'm still working on sailboats. I'm getting involved with habitat restoration in San Francisco. I'm still doing the shark work. One morning, I wake up to an email that says, so we'll be seeing you on March 2nd, will we? And I was like, what? They had put me on a waiting list and I hadn't realized it. And so I get an email that's like, so you're coming in two weeks. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I'll do it. And so I flew from California out to Pennsylvania and spent three months doing this conservation biology training program. Yeah. And that's where I started analyzing striated caracara data for the first time because Hawk Mountain had started this project in the Falklands in 2010. Yeah. Um, it's actually uh, the brainchild of Keith Bildstein. He, um, he's, a, he's a vulture man. And so he had gone to the Falklands because there's a 
turkey vulture that inhabits the Falklands. And he wanted to know more about the movement patterns and lives of these turkey vultures there. It's a subspecies. And so uh, he initially went there for that. And then he, there are all these other birds that are around and they're really gregarious and they're coming up to you and they're, they're a rare species, but they're locally abundant. So it's just a sort of mind boggling situation of, wait, what is it about these birds? And who are they and what are they? And so he um, recognized an opportunity to partner with a local organization, Falklands Conservation. Yeah. Uh, and they started a long-term monitoring project of the species. That project was five years underway when I started analyzing some of the movement data from all of the banding. Yeah. Uh, and that turned into my first publication. And Heath said, wow, this went really well. Uh, you did great with that data. And are you interested in continuing to work with the species for your graduate studies? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So I buckled down and I got more of my prerequisite courses under my belt. I went back and took physics and calculus and chemistry. And it was just kind of a nutty, nutty semester of trying to get all of the hard sciences. Uh, and then I applied to a program at Moss Landing Marine Labs, which is in Monterey Bay, California. And it's, uh, I got a degree in marine science, which you might say, oh, that's funny. This is a terrestrial raptor. How, how did you get a marine science degree? Um, but actually the striated caracara is immensely dependent upon the ocean and coastal resources. So it actually was a beautiful blend of being able to study both the bird and also the system, the system that it depends on. Yeah. And so I got my master's degree working with the Caracaras. And now I'm applying to PhD programs to continue working with the Caracaras. And in the midst of all of this, Keith decided to retire. And because I had invested so much in the project and I was familiar with the landowners and the permitting process and the birds themselves and the, all the logistics of the field work, I assumed responsibility of it. I've been nurturing it and continuing it and building upon it. It's been a great experience and actually we're gaining quite a bit of momentum. And as you said, social media, social media actually really helps uh, to get the, the word out for public outreach, public awareness of the species themselves, how unique the species is, um, building relationships for collaborations and for funding. And it's just been really rewarding I don't know if if you're aware of this or if your your audience is aware of this, but there's actually I study the Stratocaracaras, and I have a colleague in Argentina who studies the mainland population, and it's literally the two of us. Nobody else is working with the species, and the species itself is something like the the global estimate is maximum 2,500 mature individuals which is less than there are giant pandas. And everybody seems to be concerned about the population of giant pandas. Yeah, but nobody's talking about the population of Stratocaracaras. Not to mention the fact that the majority are in the Falklands, but there is a population on the mainland. And they were thought to have split something like 12, 15,000 years ago during the last glacial maximum. And so you've got a situation where there, there's no movement between the two. And so we're really pretty confident that they're subspecies. And so we're working with some, uh, we're doing a genetic analysis right now, uh, which is part of my colleague's PhD dissertation uh, to, to basically try and identify, are these isolated populations? And if they are, we really need to reassess the global estimate and also the IUCN near-threatened status, because yeah. we think that it should actually be uplisted to a vulnerable, potentially. 
Woo, that was a long, long-winded that, answer. There you go that, for that. That's absolutely, that's absolutely perfect. Run. <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah, I love listening to this because I, I cherry pick things. So there's a couple of things that, the first thing I, I'm going to go right back to what you started with, sorry, because I listen and, and try and log things. So you left a desk job. <laughs> you don't have yeah. to tell me what that desk job was, but was it a, was it, it yeah. sounds like it was a massive shift from, you know, sitting there typing, you know, doing some mundane role to then jumping on a, a boat essentially and tagging sharks or whatever you're doing. Was was that a big jump? Was it like, yeah. doing it anyway? Are you that sort of person that just goes, yeah, I'll, I'll do that? Um, well, clearly you are. Um, but was that a big jump? Or... <laughs> it was a big jump, but also I'm part of the generation that's told you can do anything and you can make it work. That's sometimes true, sometimes not. But uh, in this instance, it, it was true. And I, I left my desk job with a plan. You know, you can actually make a pretty decent amount of, you can make a living doing this gig work sailing on the San Francisco Bay. And then it was all serendipitous to start working with these science vessels. That hadn't been the plan originally, but that was my, that was my exposure. That was my the sailboats were my gateway drug. There's two things I picked up as well, listening to that. As I mentioned to you at the start, it, I love trying to tease things out that are going to help potentially yeah. other students or academics or even people that I was interested to hear you about the desk job because there's people that aren't academics that want to get out of that, you know, that rut and, and they might be mm -hmm. 30 years old or whatever and, and they want to make a break and have that dream, a dream job as though it's it. So that's really interesting to hear that. But the creative writing then, is that because that's obviously one of the most important things I find with conservation um, efforts is you can be the best scientist or biologist or conservationist. But nowadays, if you can't get your if you can't tell the story or get your story out there and obviously, you know, I found you on Instagram. So have you found that's been really, really important. The, the creative writing was that part of the big master plan. Yeah. Yeah. So the creative writing, it's actually. I did that at Stanford through my undergraduate degree. Then I kind of set it aside and I didn't really engage with it for a long time because I didn't quite have content that I felt, you know, inspired to be writing about. So that muscle like really atrophied for me, that creative writing muscle. And so getting back into it, um, I was actually quite hard on myself. Like, oh, this is, oh, like, come on. Like you studied this, you should be better at this. And and I just wasn't for a little while. and. And that's okay because it, it is a muscle and you do have to work on it and it just takes practice. And so I've been reading a lot of really good science communication pieces um, and just practicing day and day after day after day, basically, of how to communicate this well, especially because all of these social media outlets, they all kind of take a different form, you know, the really succinct tight phrase or more image oriented or more narrative based. And I've found that it's been working extremely well. Um, it's been great fun. One of the ways that I'm practicing with my own content is actually by talking about other people's work. I don't know if you've noticed on my personal Facebook page, but I really like to, to find interesting research that's uh, being published and then just kind of talk about very briefly the implications of, did you know your gut can influence the way that your brain you know, thinks and feels? You know. And so I'm not sure if I really answered your question there, but uh, creative okay. writing has been well, you, you extremely think, important. You, you, you it's definitely think, something I have to practice. 
<laughs> no, that was it, it is fun. You made me think of uh, the so this will go out as episode two in our podcast. But episode one was a wonderful gentleman called Professor Ian Newton, who's pretty much regarded as one of the leading ornithologists in Britain, if not in the world. Right. Um, and he's written right. several amazing books. But one of the things that people love about Ian is that he takes a subject, what could be a very difficult, you know, scientific, very science heavy subject and he can condense it and translate it into something that anyone can read it and that's one of the one of the wonderful gifts that he's got um ian so it's quite interesting to hear moving on to then port mountain and the training that you did there when you got that gig in britain we don't have that i'm a little bit different in that i've always been interested in birds of prey um, and I was always jealous. I used to go on the Peregrine Fund's website, for instance, because they used to advertise opportunities to go and be a harpy, work on the Harp Eagle hack release sites and, and stuff like that. And it always appeared to me that America, obviously, it's a much bigger country. You know, they've got it going on with the Raptors and these internships at places like Hawk Mountain to, to someone like me would, would have, I'd have been in my element. But listening to you talk about it briefly there, it is the idea that it's not all raptors. They want to make you a rounded, an all-round biologist, obviously then with the with the work towards raptors built into it. No, that's <laughs> not right. <laughs> um, it actually, well, well, it's partially right. It's uh, definitely raptor focused. You read books about, you know, the raptor literature. Uh, you definitely take on capstone projects dealing with raptors. But the thing that is really interesting about it is that if you have a really keen interest in getting involved in conservation biology, they use raptors as their, their mechanism to get you involved with that, with the hope that you then focus on raptors and return to where you've come from and implement raptor conservation biology in some form. You know, often people return from their training there and they start uh, hawk watch sites you know, because there are people, it's an international program. And so you have, uh, I believe that one of the main hawk watch sites in uh, Turkey was actually founded by former Hawk Mount Sanctuary trainees. Uh, and the same goes for, there's a, a watch site in the Philippines and a watch site in Argentina that was set up uh, by Hawk Mountain trainees. You do end up getting a, a holistic understanding of biology, not quite like you would in a graduate program, but the focus definitely is on raptors and the hope is that you you return and actually do something with with raptor conservation well it obviously it worked with you you, you know with the all that the, the trick yeah. with the, with the car the car guys let's so let's talk it, about it sure did yeah hook line and sinker <laughs> Let, let's talk about the caracaras then obviously Great. you said you started out underneath or under the wing of, of keith bilstein who funnily enough now <laughs> you met I've, I've heard the name and Funnily enough, the reason I remember it, sorry, is when I was working at the Bird of Prey Centre that I mentioned to you, I seem to remember the owner there mentioning about keep working with Caracas. Yes. Something to do with them. This story might be completely a little bit elaborative, <laughs> but where the Caracaras, because they're so inquisitive, he was banding them and he didn't really have to catch, trap them because they were so interested in the bands that were being put on their legs. They'd like wander over to have a look. Well, I haven't got one. And he just used to pick them up. <laughs> but I don't know whether that's a bit far-fetched. I don't know. Well, it's a little bit exaggerated, but 
not too exaggerated. It's not too far from the truth. Depending on the circumstances, it's a very social species. And so the young actually have recruitment calls, much like ravens, to attract other young to disorders. And you often with one bird or two birds, and then suddenly you have 30 birds at your trap. And they're just, it's a scrum. They're all going after it. And nobody's paying attention to the, the people with the gloves and the bags next to them. So I have heard, it might be lore because I haven't done it myself, but I have heard that uh, Keith reached down and just picked up a bird from the trap site and took it back into the banding shed and banded it. It might have been something to do with the shed. Someone said something about they'd be in the shed banding and the caracaras would wander over and have a look in and go, oh, what's definitely, going on in here? Definitely. And they'd walk in and then I suppose they've essentially walked into a big trap in some shed, in the shape of a shed. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. In terms of the, the project at the moment, what are you what are you currently working on? What what are the what are the aims and objectives of what you're doing at the moment with the caracaras? Gosh, I have I tend to work best when I, I'm juggling a lot of projects. <laughs> so I've got a few different things that I'm working on. Um, I might have mentioned the genetic analysis. And so we're looking to see whether or not it's actually two subspecies. And so that's that's one major focus right now. The banding is ongoing and we're continuing to get resightings from that. And that's telling us a lot about their movement within, within the islands and what areas are really important to them. Last time I was down there was August, 2019. And I had plans to go this year, but COVID obviously got in the way. But in 2019, I was able to put GPS data loggers on both the male and female of five different pairs on one of the most important breeding islands. And so this was the non-breeding season, but what we were able to establish with this, it's a very small sample size, but what it indicates is that these birds are year round territorial. And so they maintain their territories through the winter. And not only that, they have very high pair cohesion. We found on average that the male and female of a pair were remaining within 100 meters of each other all day, all night. Wow. It was just extraordinary. And they have extremely small homes, home ranges as well. And so we found that they, the area that they were defending and moving within day after day was less than one square kilometer. That's the territory size. Wow. And this is a falcon. This is a bird of prey. And you're like, what? You know, you get some researchers who just, they search day and night and day and night to try and locate the bird or the nest. And I can basically walk uh, down the coastline and say, oh, there's the nest and oh, this is the territory. <laughs> it's really remarkable. Um, but one of the great things about having this sort of multi-pronged project is that I had put bands on both the male and female of pairs in the preceding breeding season. And so we had identified that they were a breeding pair and then we returned the following winter and saw, okay, there's still a pair and they're still in the same territory. And then the wardens are good friends of mine. And it's a, I should side note, this island is a nature preserve, new island in the Falklands. And so there are only two humans that live there. They're the, the caretakers. And so the wardens were actually monitoring the nests for me once I had taken off. And we were able to get the um, nest success for these birds and their territory sizes and their uh, the strength of their pair bond, you know, proxied through this distance they remained within each other's presence. Um, so that's kind of, that's one of the uh, things that I've been doing lately is just looking at their, their social structure, their mating system, um, their space needs. And so that's one thing. And then uh, otherwise, something that's um, been really great is just 
by spending hour after hour after hour in the field, I start to notice what is typical and what's atypical with the species. And you start to notice when, oh, that seems definitely of note. Like for instance, I just saw a falcon eat an octopus. <laughs> and so I went and I published on this falcon eating an, an octopus because I'm pretty sure it's the first record of, of this type of species interaction. So, so you've got sort of the, the planned research and then you've got the, the unplanned research, which are all these natural history nodes. And then my future research initiatives, I'm actually leaning more toward their cognitive ecology. And as you've heard, these are very social and intelligent inquisitive birds, brains are expensive. So why would you, why would you invest in an advanced brain? Why do you need it? What is it capable of? Is that how you've been able to survive? And so I'm interested in blending the ecology of the species, you know, their, their, their space use and social structures and resource needs with their cognitive abilities. And so I'm going to be um, doing that for my PhD work and, uh, doing work with wild birds in the Falklands, but then also with captive birds in the UK. Brilliant. Yeah, well, of course, we talked about this again, I think, off air. And I, with my background with captive birds, I've been lucky enough to work with caracaras, so I know a, a fair bit about um, their mischievousness and their, their intelligence, uh, or, which is one and the same thing, really. That's probably a good time to plug your, your social media um, pages again, because you've put some fantastic... Um, images but also video footage of those was I, the one I remember is obviously the carrot the the youngster is it a juvenile playing with some seaweed rolling on his yeah. back and playing with yeah seaweed. so is that a cool yeah. so they are genuine because I know scientists or someone might be listening to this who's a hardened scientist might be going no it's birds playing or something is that definitely what's what's happening these birds are in the wild they're, they're this bird was rolling about playing with a ball of seaweed essentially yeah i mean obviously with science you can never say that's 100 percent exactly what's going on because i'm not the bird i'm not inside the bird's mind but based on the definition of play and the way that play is studied in primates uh or it, in birds you know when you think about ravens getting on a, a shiny object and sledding down a hill uh, or you think about kia and uh, the ways that kia have been shown to play together um there's a couple different types of play. There's the social play, which is obviously with, with another individual. Um, and then there's object play, which is object, object manipulation that seems to have no nutritional gain for the individual or no sort of uh, fitness gain for the individual. And so this bird was playing with an inedible, inanimate object and running around, kickboxing, rolling onto its back, uh, moving on to a different object and kickboxing the other object, stopping and pausing and preening, and then running back to the other object and kicking it and rolling around with it. And, and you think to yourself, okay, if that's not play, then what is it? So to the best of our understanding of the definition, that's, that's what we're identifying it as right now. And it's something that we can look at further as we do some of these cognitive ability studies and looking at what is stimulating to these birds? What are they capable of doing? How are they learning? Kind of why are they learning? And then try and look at some of those correlates with other species that have been shown to be really intelligent and looking at their play behaviors and seeing, you know, just, just building out our understanding of, of what it means to learn and how you learn and uh, yeah, how play might have a role in that. It's such a, it, from that sense of view, from someone who's, you know, watched lots of birds of prey, um, different species it's 
it's such a fascinating species yeah mm-hmm. because of this um this cognitive ability that they seem seem to have and, and show in its own right is 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 a fascinating species so yeah good luck with the phd that's really that's really exciting thank you um, yeah really exciting um obviously these we, we well we've talked about it. it's come up a couple of times the falklands and, and where they are what's it like then being living on a remote island as you said one of the islands you mentioned has got caretakers there's only two people on there what go on mm-hmm. explain to people what it's like to be a raptor biologist living <laughs> on a remote island or islands yeah well first of all you have the task of getting there and so it takes me five days to arrive to my study site uh, because i have to go you know through Texas as a hub, and then Santiago, and then Punta Arenas is the base of Chile, and then there's one flight a week to the Falklands. You have to make sure that you catch that flight, otherwise you're waiting another week. And then you get out to the Falklands, and the capital is Stanley, and that's where the bulk of the population lives. And you have to wait there until you have a a weather window, because then you jump on a small prop plane, uh, an island hopper, and you head out to the west. And so, with this most recent study I was telling you about with the um, GPS data for the pairs, when I went out to New Island, I got stuck in Stanley for maybe six days waiting for a weather window to go out to this island because they have one tiny dirt airstrip and it's only one direction. And so you have to have the ability has to be right. The wind direction has to be right. There's a lot of factors involved. It can't be too uh, wet. You can't have had too much rain because of the the runway itself, the little airstrip gets all mucky. And then also the, the dirt track back to the settlement becomes impassable by the vehicle. So it's it's quite the challenge just to get there. But then once you're, once you're there, it's extraordinary. It's so quiet. You, you hear one plane a week, which is the flight from South America. Otherwise, there's nothing. It's just you and thousands of birds. They have one of the largest global populations of black, black-browed albatross and huge population of rockhopper penguins and burrowing petrels. It's just, it's extraordinary. And as I mentioned before, this is one of the largest populations of breeding caracaras. And so a really interesting story about New Island is that as of 1972, I think it was, there were no caracaras, none on New Island. There had been a historical population. We know that from a book that was written by a a sealer who was marooned in the 1800s. And he talked about all the caracaras that were bothering him on New Island. But then by 1970, because of persecution, because of just wholesale shooting of the birds, none, they were gone. And then uh, a man by the name of Ian Strange organized to, uh, to make this island a preserve. And then once the shooting stopped, and the birds started repopulating. Most recently in 2015, there were 86 breeding pairs and it's the third largest breeding population in the Falklands. It's just extraordinary when you think about conservation and what can happen if you just back up and let the birds return to their business. It's just phenomenal. So you can walk along the shoreline and it's every 200 meters, you come across another Stratocaracara territory. It's just an extraordinary density. What's it but it's so- challenging to get back to your point about what is it like yeah. to be on a remote island it's you have wind and you have squalls and there is a point where my my colleague and i uh, we were out doing a, a walking survey and a squall came through and it, this was winter austral winter 
And we had to just sit down because there are 400 foot cliffs into the ocean. And we're like, we're not exactly sure where that cliff edge is. So we're just gonna sit down and wait for this squall to pass because we can't see anything. So um, definitely have to, have to take some precautions. I wear probably five layers of merino wool and it's always just honking wind. And you have to, you just have to be really aware all the time because if the wind doesn't take your things, Stride Care Cares will. <laughs> so you can't set anything down because they're going to fly off with that. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, yeah. Great. So it's, it's, so much, it's really extraordinary. It's challenging, but it's. I was just going to say, fun. how many is in a team then normally when you're out there? How many of you are working on it? Just two of us. Oh, wow. Yeah, just two of us. You've got to be pretty comfortable in your own your own because I often think it's like when I've been out and yeah done various things and people say oh what's it like you know what's it like and and people think oh so when I went to the Philippines and we spent some time out out in in some quite remote parts and people are like oh what's it like um it must be so exciting and all this and I'm like well yeah it is but it's quite there's a it's quite dull as well at times you've got to be used to your own your own brain and your own head and because yeah there's so I assume it's, it's, uh, that's heightened on the floor because if there's just two of you, you've got to be pretty comfortable in your own skin and looking after yourself. Yeah, except except it's really interesting because you would think, oh yeah, you probably have a lot of downtime because there's no telephone, there's no internet, you know, what are you going to do with all your time? But actually, gosh, in the summer, you're out in the field from sunrise to sunset and being in the Falklands, that's a hefty amount of time. <laughs> that's uh you know six in the morning until eight o'clock at night um and then you know uh depending on the island where i am you're either walking uh, about an hour to get out to areas where you want to be studying the birds or i drive a quad uh, on another island which is very helpful that's much quicker than walking on foot but so in the summer you're just you're just out all day and you're just wiped out and all you want to do is sleep when you get back well, shower first because you smell a lot like Johnny Rook and you smell a lot like mutton, which is what I use to trap the birds. So I just like, I can't even, I, the other day I tried to eat a lamb burger with my friend and I was having like field work flashbacks. I, was, I can't do this. There's too much. I can't smell the lamb on my fingers right now. It's reminding me of being in the field. I feel stressed out. Like I have to do some data analysis right now. Uh, so, but then in the winter you have these very short days and, uh, you know, that cuts down on the amount of time you can be out in the field, but then that gives you time to actually write all of your notes and write the natural history and make sure that you're documenting everything because it's such an immense investment of time and energy and finances to do a field season there that you just want to bring it dry, just learn as much as you can, capture as much as you can. And so, gosh, my colleague and I in August, we Austral winter, we would get back from the field and you're you're tired and you're hungry and you're cold, but you just pound it out on the computer trying to remember everything it, it was that you saw and transcribing all of your data from your field notebooks while it's all fresh. Brilliant. And that's been really valuable. I we we uh, have two publications that are in review right now that are both behavioral, that are these natural history observations that I had mentioned. Uh, and that we wouldn't have been able to do that had we not been working very hard to just always be present and aware and observing and to notice that is 
different than this and we haven't seen that and what is going on here and and then just getting home and and really crunching those thoughts the one paper it's fascinating to me that we observed an adult stratocaracara fly into a territory to try and access a resource and there was a pair in this territory that were defending this resource so the adult that approached started mimicking the begging call of a hatchier bird mimicked the posture mimicked the sound completely submissive, identical to what we see in a begging hatchier. And these, this adult pair immediately stopped being aggressive toward it, sort of backed off, let it be there. And then he stopped doing the submissive behavior and the birds got a little bit more agitated and were coming toward him again. Then he switched tactics and he started doing a recruitment call and started bringing in other birds to try and help him access this resource. But this idea of having, okay, let's try strategy one, let's try strategy two, <laughs> let's just like to keep cycling through these ideas of how can I access this food, you know, this did work, I'm going to try this, but then also just this submissive behavior had never been recorded by an adult. And it's just phenomenal because we tend to associate these behaviors as a specific age group, yeah. but it seems as though these are behaviors that these birds can retain and then have in their repertoire. It's kind of a manipulative action if you think about it. So then that kind of takes some advanced cognition if you think about like being strategic and manipulative to access a resource. Absolutely. So that was one of the observations that's in review right now, which I'm waiting for the editors to get back to me about. And then the, the second observation was fascinating is uh, large scale foraging of earthworms by Stratocaracaras. This is a falcon digging in the ground like a chicken for earthworms. And we were seeing this, not just a handful of birds, we were seeing this island-wide. However, we weren't seeing it on another island that we visited. And what we think is the difference, New Island had all of its sheep removed, mainly I think in the 90s, but the last, or maybe it was the 70s and the last sheep were removed in 2006. But anyways, there's been time for the landscape to recover and the, the soil isn't quite as impacted. And so I think that you have a much more flourishing invertebrate community in the soil that's, that's accessible by the birds because the ground isn't as hard. And so on New Island, you see this really large scale raking of these stratocaracaras, which is an ancestral behavior. You see caracaras in the Andes doing a lot of ground scratching, but you don't see it on an island that still has sheep. And I think that's because the ground is really hard and it's hard for them to access it. So we are seeing in the winter, dozens and dozens of caracaras raking for worms. And winter is thought to be a time of stress for these birds. All the seabirds leave, and it's often been, uh, it's actually in the literature in a few places, that winter is a, a stressful time, that they're lower in weight, that they're really struggling to survive, and how are they doing it? And we're thinking that potentially these invasive earthworms are helping these birds survive through winter. So it's just kind of a fascinating situation of, the birds get wiped out on New Island, sheep are brought in, yeah. sheep are taken off, but now there's invasive grasses and invasive earthworms, and then the caracaras come back, and now they're benefiting from the invasives. It's kind of helping sustain them through winter. Yeah. So it's just, it's a it's fascinating and dynamic, and uh, these birds have have identified a new resource that can help them survive through through the lean months of winter. Because of course I read I read the report the piece that the article that you sent me through which I'll attach I'll, I'll somehow I'll try and attach it to the to the, uh, yeah the podcast and if we put this on YouTube so people other people great I'll, yeah. I'll share it I'll share it on our Facebook page as well so 
so people can can read it. Um, Great. But uh, yeah, you talk about so talk about some of the pressures that that Caracaras are facing. Obviously, persecution. I'm assuming isn't isn't an issue anymore. Um, I might be wrong, but yeah, talk about the pressures that Caracaras are facing. <laughs> Um, or this, this group of birds. Yeah, yeah. So they're formally protected by the Falklands government now. But of course, it's the same around the world. There are still obviously people who get agitated with wildlife sometimes. And so there are events, but they're not documented and they're not legal. And so persecution has definitely decreased. Yeah. Um, but we can't say for certain that it doesn't happen. Strided caracaras are terrestrial. They can't actually leave the Falklands. But you have situations where because of climate change and because of overfishing, you have seabird populations that are actually moving, changing their range, abandoning colonies. And so if you get seabirds eventually abandoning colonies on uh, the Falklands, or not even abandoning colonies, if you just have overfishing that then depletes the seabird populations, these caracaras don't have anywhere to go. They can't follow the birds. They can't leave the islands. So they're kind of hard up for what's their next resource. So you've got issues that will be affecting their prey, like the overfishing and the climate, uh, which will then affect the striated caracaras. You have sea level rise. If sea level rises, caracaras range is going to be restricted. There's always the threat of persecution. Yeah, those are the, those are the main ones. Just trying to paint a picture for people, but seabirds are a real critical part of of their diet and that. Their yeah, ecology. yeah. Yeah, so striated caracaras are, they're kind of, they're kind of clumsy predators, but they do, they do predate seabirds, but primarily what they do is they scavenge the carcasses and they scavenge dead chicks. And so there's sea lions offshore that will attack a, pen, a penguin, cause it harm. It, the penguin comes ashore, but then there's no hope for the penguin. And so Johnny Ricks do this incredible job of sort of keeping the islands clean, um, like, like good scavengers anywhere. <laughs> so, so not necessarily taking live prey from these seabirds, which they do, but not primarily. It's, it's mainly just scavenging the resources that are available because of these large seabird colonies. But what we've learned through our research is that invertebrates actually play a huge role in their diet as well. They're eating, they're digging and rotting kelp for kelp fly larvae. They're digging in the grass for the worms. They're turning over on islands that have sheep and cattle. They're turning over patties, dung patties, yeah, yeah, to get yeah. the bugs underneath. I mean, they're they're really they're eking out a living in kind of an extraordinary way of the historical resources, but also identifying all of these new resources that have come with farming. And then in the winter, they often young birds associate with farms, and so they'll come into farms and try and pinch dog bones or pinch animal feed, you know, when you throw the compost out to the hens, they'll get that. The wife on Saunders Island feeds two pigs once daily. They're in an outdoor enclosure and they, she feeds them two geese. The strata caracaras know this. They know 4 p.m. Susan's going to feed the pigs. And so they've learned to wait at this pig pen. They'll go at the appropriate time. They'll wait for her if she's not there. Or sometimes they recognize her truck. If she starts driving her truck toward the pen, they'll fly in. They'll just emerge from the woodwork and fly in and be at this pig pen. And there have been times where in the winter I've seen 180 striated caracaras at this pig feeding, all vying for scraps from these two pigs who are eating two geese. And you get 
I've seen I've seen a young Karakara riding the back of a pig, sitting on the pig because he thought he had the best vantage there to try and access scraps from the geese. It's just phenomenal. And so you have this like really intense density and they're all jockeying for food. And that was one of the things I looked at with my uh, master's degree was, what does this mean energetically for the Stratocaracaras? I was looking at activity levels between summer and winter and how how much energy they're exerting between these two seasons and how much movement and uh, the, the intensity of their activity. While I did not find that they're expending more energy in winter, I did find that they're jamming it all into daylight hours, which is a really cool finding. So they're sort of just adjusting based on the available daylight, um, what they need to do and when. Do, do you find, so, with, with, them, with them being scavengers, do you find there's any form of hierarchy between adults, sub-adults, juveniles, or is it just a free-for-all? You know, just then that picture of 180 caracas, huh. is it a free-for-all? Have you found anything out about that? Well, this is a fascinating question. It's complex. Something that I think is going on is that there's like a threshold. When they're, when the numbers are smaller, you can get um, what Susan on Saunders calls a bossy caracara. And the bossy caracara will be flying around the pig pen and, you know, being really aggressive towards other like, hey, this is my pig pen, you know, like, get out of here. This is my pig pen. But then you get the recruitment calls and you get the, the huge influx of younger birds. And then it's like, then it becomes the free for all um, because you're overwhelming this sort of bossier adult tend to outnumber and overwhelm adults. Adults have this really interesting behavior of, in smaller numbers, they seem to be tolerant of the juveniles and they seem to allow the juveniles to sort of take over and supplant them. So you'll see an adult bird eating something and you see a juvenile run over and supplant, sort of just kick out the adult bird and the juvenile is eating what the adult was eating. And the adult bird doesn't seem to care. It doesn't defend it, doesn't be aggressive, just sort of backs off and lets the juvenile do its thing. And so that we're thinking is a, is a form of social learning. You know, this is a really long lived species up to 30, 40 years in captivity. Uh, we're not quite sure in the wild, but maybe so far we know at least 12 years. And they have a really long childhood. It takes them four to five years to reach adult plumage. And then beyond that, I don't think that they're reproductively mature until six or seven years old. And so they have all this time to learn how to be a caracara, how to survive in the South Atlantic, how to be a bird in this environment. That's a lot of time to learn and they need a lot of tools to be able to learn. And so one of these learning mechanisms, I think are these adults being tolerant of the younger birds and saying, okay, I'll show you how to do it this is what I'm doing, now you do it, kind of thing. So in terms of a hierarchy, it, it just seems complex. It depends on the on the context of the situation. Yeah, I, well, I was gonna, I was thinking about that before and, and well, you've answered, you've answered the question because obviously when we talk, think of, of animals uh, and intelligence, people always go to the primates, for instance. And so you, you, you think of species like the orangutan mm -hmm. where the, where the, the juvenile, the youngsters spend so long, it's, it's such a long development. I think in around time, is it 12 years or something that, uh, until their clusters, you know, and they can go alone, so to speak. So that's really interesting what you, I was gonna ask you about the caracaras and well, really basic, how many eggs do they lay or how many, how many young do they tend to raise? And then how long are the youngsters have you seen dependent on mom and dad? Talk about some real basic eco ecology of them. Yeah, all great questions. And so just for some background, 
there are only, I think, 12 last time I counted papers about stratocaracaras that have ever been published. That's obviously not a lot. <laughs> so there is so much we don't actually know about these birds. They are just ripe to have more researchers come on board and start asking questions because there's plenty of questions to still ask. Um, so what I know from uh, some nest success data on New Island is that uh, there's an average of these birds generally lay about three eggs per nest, and the average productivity on New Island was two, two fledged chicks. I'm not sure if we have a colleague on Sea Lion Island who possibly has seen four, four eggs in a nest, but that's, I believe, atypical. Yeah. And then you generally have uh, a paired mating structure, but we do see trios, uh, and they're, uh, we're not sure what the composition of the trio is. Um, but they do exist where all three will be tending to the chicks. And this is something actually, uh, if you're familiar with red-throated caracaras in Guyana, they have this amazing social system where it's like a whole group, maybe 15 birds will raise one chick wow. and they all work collectively to raise one chick. It's not that extreme with caracaras, but we do see uh, trios. Uh, and then something else that we've seen recently is, uh, we haven't done any research with this, but the adult birds do duet calls. And if you're, you can look online and see some video or I'll try and post some video of an uh, adult pair doing a duet call where the, each member of the pair throws their head back and, and does this, this beautiful care care cry. And I'm not gonna imitate it, sorry. <laughs> but, um, so it's typically been thought, yeah, it's been thought that this is for uh, pair bonding to, for, for bond maintenance, for bond strengthening, uh, to defend territory, to defend a resource. Most recently I've been seeing, uh, because we have the genetic data now for these birds, we're seeing male-male duet calls. And I don't know what the function of that would be. And I don't know anything other than just that we have this observation now, that, that we have um, these, this pair living bird that seems to have at least socially monogamous mating systems, but yet sometimes trios, and then you seem to have these sort of like friend bonds between adults. And I'm, I'm really not quite sure. I mean, that's really all I can say about that because it just hasn't been looked at that closely yeah. or, or at all, really. These are, these are all preliminary studies looking at how, how their social structure is, but so, uh, what, so, what's even going so on. We're just, we're just beginning to learn. It does. It's, mm -hmm. It sounds so exciting, like a fantastic project to, well, to be involved in. And, and it's, yeah. it's cool to hear that, 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 yeah, there's lots of scope for, um, for other researchers to, to yeah, get involved. That's, uh, that's, that's really exciting. So I suppose that yeah. was one of my questions here. Yeah, it's, it's literally. I was just no, going to say go one ahead. of my questions then was to finish up was about future aims and plans, but you've, you've pretty much covered it there because there's so much more to learn about. You've got your PhD, obviously, and there's so much more to learn about these. Yeah, I always yeah. And, and that's the great thing about. Sorry, the Wi-Fi is killing us at the moment. Carry on. <laughs> that's OK. The great thing about this is I have my PhD questions about their cognitive ecology. But being down there, I'll also continue with movement studies and with behavioral studies and trying to really disentangle what it is that allows this species to survive socially or in terms of, of space use or in terms of the resources available. And so I'll just be 
as you can tell, like I mentioned earlier, like I'm just, I'm kind of have my, I've got a lot of pots on the stove trying to figure out what it is about these birds and, and what we can do to really help them thrive as best possible in this changing world. And especially with such a restricted range and such a restricted population, in addition to what I'm learning, a great joy of mine has just been sharing all of this with others. And like I mentioned on my Instagram and on my Facebook and just helping other people experience this bird is just such a special species. I mean, from a, from a biological diversity standpoint, but also just from a, we're all on this planet together and we all have so much to learn from each other. And it's just, it's just been an extraordinary experience to work on this project. And to, I'm really looking forward to continuing it and to building collaborations and um, just getting more people excited about, about this uh, care Cara. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I can't, I've got to ask you my last question. That, I mean, that was a pretty good thing to wrap up on, actually. But I've got to ask you my last question, sure. Katie, that, that I put to everyone who, who I interviewed. Sure. Oh, what is it? <laughs> so, the, so what advice would you give to a budding young, uh, or not necessarily young, a budding raptor biologist? Go on, one piece of advice you would give them. One piece of advice. Well, can I give a couple pieces of advice? <laughs> One would be don't stop. Just go for it. Just go for it. And the other would be always look. You don't have to go anywhere to do great research. You can be in your backyard observing observing the birds in your backyard. And, and if you're really interested in raptors, you can actually start with other species and start answering questions with other species and then transfer those skill sets to raptors. And so think big, don't stop, always look. Um, I have friends who put up a, this isn't raptors, but I have friends who put up a, a recording device on their porch so that they could record bats that are visiting their, their porch in the night. And then they download that data and they've started identifying the bat species. And they're gonna do some simple experiments just on their porch by putting out um, false prey items, and different colors of light and just seeing if anything affects the bat abundance and presence absence and you can do that you can you can start to build your build your skill sets build your portfolio with just asking simple questions with the resources you have available to you and then go from there and it, and it will happen it can happen so fantastic thank you right and it, well I've, I've kept you long yeah. enough um, you're welcome katie uh thank you so much for your <laughs> it was time. a total I'll pleasure I'll make sure I share um, your Facebook and your Instagram page and, and yeah, uh, I'll get as many people onto it as possible. Excellent. But Thank you. All, all the best with the rest of your research. I'll, Great. I'll keep, now you've, now you've been, uh, yeah, you've Thank been you. on that day. We'll, we'll keep sharing it and, and, and putting it out there. So thank you very much for your time, Katie. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, why not give us a subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the up-to-date news on what's going on with the world of Birds of Prey and Raptor Aid.